The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, is an independent nonprofit organization founded in 1986. Located at the State Department's George P. Schultz National Foreign Affairs Training Center in Arlington, Virginia, ADST advances understanding of American diplomacy and supports training of foreign affairs personnel through a variety of programs and activities. Over the past quarter century, ADST has conducted more than 1,800 oral histories, which are also posted on the Library of Congress website, with more to come. For more information on ADST and our oral histories, please visit www.adst.org. This podcast contains part two of three of Kathleen Turner's 2012 oral history. Well, when you were in Cuba, how. This is. You were there before the revolution. Oh, yes. My father closed the embassy. Yeah. What? What were. Can you talk a bit about your experience? Yes, I can. When we were in Cuba, well,、um, I was in pre primaria then. And、um, we were put into the school with these. Strict uniforms and everything. I mean, I remember a brown skirt, a tan blouse, and they're being very, very hot. And we had to ride, we had assigned seats on this bus, and I was in between these two really big girls. Anyway, and the, we, the teacher, now this is pre primaria, which is basically kindergarten, but there was some kind of dictation or something, and I had no Spanish whatsoever. So every day the teacher would come by and, and look at my blank page and take out this red pencil and write, Zero! Zero otra vez! You know, every day.、Um, any case, we lived in a lovely house that had a beautiful garden. And the previous owners had left their dogs, these two wine ramas called Oro and Plata. And Plata was the, the female. Oro was the male, and he was big enough that I could actually sort of ride on him. You know, beautiful dogs. And in any case, I remember when the tension started to rack it up, ratchet up. And, well, there's one memory that I came into my room, and the,、uh, there was a tarantula. And my father came running in with a machete and chopped it into pieces. And I remember the arms still wiggled、Ew. after it was chopped up. I was like, okay.、Oh, anyway. Yeah, it's one of those nice memories. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But we had this very nice maid, a very nice、uh, woman. And、um, when the tensions started to rise, when the government was, when Batista was deposed and everything, then <coughs> I went to school one day. And. My brother and sister and I used to trade off. Every third day, one of us got to get a soda, you know, from the machine rather than a drink from home. It was a big day. It was a big thing.、Um, we went, and the teacher told us to close our eyes and pray to God for candy. And we did. And she said, Open your eyes. And she said, There's no candy. Pray, close your eyes and pray to Castro for candy. And she went and put pieces, you know, because I didn't know that. Open your eyes. Who loves you, God or Castro? So I went home and said, Mom, Castro, you know, gave me candy. And that was it. That was the last day we went to school. 
do you know? But it started that early because the teachers and the intelligentsia, of course, were very much pro Castro and the change, you know, in revolution. So that was the last day I went to school. And then we started to hunker down in the house and things happened like the maid, you know, came crying and said she could no longer work for Americans, you know, and she she left and yeah, and my mother, I remember complaining about not being able to uh, shop at certain stores. They wouldn't take her money, you know, kind of thing. The anti-American feeling was getting very high. And then one day, we came out on the back patio and Oro and Plata were dead. They had been poisoned. Do you know, someone had done that. Which was a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, then one day I walk into the living room and... When you picked up the phone between the time you dialed and the phone was connected, there was a recording. Castro is our leader. Castro is our savior. Castro. And I can remember my mother yelling at the phone. Castro is a bastard. Castro is an asshole. You know, I'm going, whoa, mom. <laughs> kind of thing. Education. So they got the women and children out to Florida. Took us to Clearwater. And the men stayed, the officers stayed for almost another six months. Then I was down in Miami, not too long ago, a few years ago, 10 years ago. I was doing a benefit for something. And I got a, 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 a note, a message, at the stage door, saying, please understand, you, I, I must see you. You, you. Your father saved my life. And I thought, all right. So this young man came back, and he told this story that I kind of remembered from my father. That when the officers, they were grant, given a plane, you know, to leave Cuba. And they knew that there would be major retaliations against the embassy staff. So under the pretext of the staff gathering to say goodbye to the officers, they all went to the airport and the officers loaded the staff onto the plane and stayed on the tarmac, knowing that they would have to give them another flight, another plane out of there. But one of the secretaries had a newborn baby without papers, without anything, and was terrified that she would not be allowed into the United States or the boy would be taken away. And my father evidently took this paper and wrote out a visa and signed it and everything and everything and gave it to her and said, hold on to that. And that got her and the boy into the United States. And it was this boy, this man now, who said, this is a story my mother has always told me. Oh, and when I saw you were going to be here, I wanted to thank his daughter. And I thought that was really wonderful, do you know? Yeah. Well, right? This is one of the things, let's say I've spent my entire career as a counselor office. And... Um, it's, uh, I mean, sometimes you do, you can really change lives. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a follow-up story to that, then. Then we were sent to, um, to Caracas, for Venezuela. We were there five years, which was the longest we were <coughs> anywhere. Anyway, and, um, my first boyfriend was Dario Gonzalez, and he went to the American school, but he was Cuban originally. The family had fled to Venezuela from Cuba. And um, when you know, I was taken, you know, I went, his parents invited me to his home for dinner one night, you know. 
Because we were all very, very proper. I mean, every young woman was chaperoned. Nobody went anywhere alone. And by then, then at that time, I was very blonde, you know, blue-eyed. It was not wise to run around. And you couldn't anyway. You couldn't go anywhere on your own. But my mother, my, her mother, his mother, I remember looking at me and saying, Turner, is your father Richard Turner? I said, yes. And she, she spent two weeks in line uh, on the sidewalk to get a visa in the United States. And she was second to up to the window when they broke relations. And she said, she'll never forget my father because he said, I have to close the window now. I'm sorry. I cannot grant any more visas. And she'd been sleeping on the sidewalk for two weeks. And she said, I... She says, I know now I do not blame him, but I did then. I thought, one more, just one more, you know. Anyway, and they had trouble getting out because they were professionals, you know, and the father was a scientist, and they didn't want, not want to let those people go. But anyway, that was a bit of a coincidence, you know. Yeah. Well, one of these things, the type of experience you're having in the, uh, right from the get-go, the, the complexities of foreign relations and the movement of people, and all, particularly mm -hmm. in association with the counselor side of matters. Mm -hmm. Did your father bring home stories of people getting into trouble? I know with my three children, <coughs> they got all sorts of drug stories, which I made very well, sure to impart to them. I remember one Thanksgiving, my father had to leave Thanksgiving dinner because an American plane, a small, a drug smuggling plane, had come down, had been forced down, and uh, it was an American pilot, and he was in deep trouble. And so my father left uh, to go to the jail and uh, see what could be done. Um, I, I think, you know, looking back, our life was really extraordinarily sheltered, particularly in countries where there was um, another language, you know, like Venezuela. The American community was very, almost insular in some ways. And it wasn't just the embassy personnel. It was Americans abroad, you know, the expats. We form a community anywhere we go. But um, particularly in, in different language cultures. Obviously in England it didn't feel nearly as restrictive or as, you know, as, uh, we, we felt much more absorbed, much more part of but then if you contrast it to the military service kids who never got off base, you know, I mean, I met kids who spent five years and never spoke any Spanish because their schools, their movie houses, their stores, everything was on a military base and they never mingled with it. So for that, I am very thankful that, you know, as a diplomat, we were part of the community. Uh, then in London, I worked two summers at the embassy. When I was too young, but my father let me do it anyway. Because he was consul by then. So I worked in the visa section, which was quite well, amusing. Before we get to that, I want to yeah. ask about in Venezuela. Venezuela has been, has its terrible troubles right now. Yes. But the, the troubles were there before. And that was this discrepancy between the wealthy and the, not, and, the, and the poor, and there wasn't much of a middle class. Well, I can remember when I lived there that there was talk already 
Now, we left there in 68 to go to London. So I remember there was already a great deal of discussion about the, about the, the threat of nationalization to the oil and some of the huge landowners, you know, in the, uh, what you call it, Yaderas, uh, uh, in the beautiful open farmlands. These people own tracts, you know, of hundreds of, or thousands of square miles. And uh, so even then, you know, and I was just turned 13 when we left, but I remember discussions even then of the threat of, you know, of the terrible inequity. And in the class system that existed, because there was the Hidalgos, there were the pure Spanish settlers, and then there were, you know, the, the Indians, the natives, of course, were the bottom of the bunch. And in between there were the mestizos, kind of the middle class, mixed blood, and blacks. And the Indians being the very lowest of the, of the social order. But the gap between the, the Hidalgos, and the real descendants of the conquistadors, and the, the native people, huge. You know, absolutely huge. And there was, we rarely came into contact with anyone of the lower classes, except in our charity work, of course, because, and this was something that I think, I think my mother said to me once that, of course, it was expected that every Foreign Service wife, but also the young women of the family, would work in in charity um, organizations. It was an unspoken rule, which it did. Uh, and when I was 11, I was, I went to work once a, once a week on Wednesdays, you know, for a couple of hours a day on Wednesdays uh, in a, ortho, a national a government organ, um, orthopedic hospital, which was a really, truly terrible terrible situation. I, each week I would make up these little plastic bags of candies and little toys and things like that and for the girls in my ward. And then usually I would read to them or, you know, something like that. But by now, of course, I was quite fluent because um, Campo Alegre was, had half Spanish, half English a lot of the day. So you obviously, you were immersed, you know. But um, there was a practice, is a practice, in most South American countries, very strong then, called limosnas, where you take a child, a beautiful child usually, an attractive child, and you break uh, a, a, a limb or something, of course, and you bind it badly so that it grows back, you know, as a cripple, and then you use the child to beg. And very often this is the only income for the family, perhaps. So, uh, about once a year, government would sweep through, pick up these kids, re-break their limbs, reset them. That's when I either put them in this hospital. And when they were healed, release them. And if they were still young enough and attractive enough, they would be back in another six months, you know. Mm -hmm. And there was this beautiful young girl who had both legs badly broken, and she was in a, a body cast from the waist down while I was there, and uh, she w was finally healed, and 
And um, she, uh, when she came back, I said, I can't do this anymore, you know, to my, to my parents, I really can't. And they completely, you know, understood. But you did that, you know, and the, and the wives did all kinds of outreach uh, to organizations, sometimes through the church, um, uh, very often through programs at the embassy. Yeah, I know my wife ran an international Girl Scout unit with... Absolutely. With my the, mother was the head of TOPS, uh -huh. Troops on Foreign Soil. Uh, this is, <laughs> these were Indian, Pakistani, Burmese, and mm. all together. They all wore their national uniforms. But yeah. Yeah. And the communist country was interesting. It was. Um, did, uh, with your Spanish, have been able to keep up with it? Oh, yes. And tack on some French and some Italian, yep. My, this is something my father gave me as a great gift. He said, if you have only one language, you have only one way of thinking. And I agree. I truly do. It isn't a question of translating words. It's concepts and cultural context that gives you an education, you know. Did, um, how did you, were you able to get help much in, around in uh, Venezuela and Caracas? Or? In Venezuela, um, we could not go anywhere without a parent driving us somewhere. Now, what, what the practice was after school or on weekends, everybody belonged to a club. I mean, mine was a swimming tennis club, and there were other kinds of clubs. And basically, you know, four or five, basically all the internationals went to one of these uh, clubs. And as I say, mine was tennis and, and swimming. And then... We had, uh, through the scouting program, we had a, a camp, you know, up in the mountains that we would view, visit once a year and stuff. Well, I got empatigo, I remember. I fell down and cut my face and I got empatigo. And the only thing to treat it with then was gentian violet. Oh, yes, yeah, stuff. Yeah, so I had to go to school looking like Hitler <laughs> with his purple mustache. It was really lovely. Everybody was going to hide down the aisles. <laughs> Yeah, boy, my confidence, yeah, I would survive that one, you know. It prepared you for hostile audiences. But we did travel as a family some. We went, um, well, in the church choir, we had a handbell choir. And my brother and I, my older brother and I were in that. And we, would, we traveled a couple times to Maracaibo and once up to the Colombian border uh, to play for groups. And as a family, we tried to, we went, we went on some trips down into the Amazon. I don't think we ever went very deeply, and I never went to Angel Falls. I think my older brother did, but I never got there. Um, don't know why. But, no, we were, it was a fairly restrictive life, to be honest. Did your family ever get together, I mean, you know, a dinner table and talk about the situation and the either in Argentina or Venezuela or in the world or anything like that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, we weren't as interested or as involved with domestic politics. You know, my father felt or said that it didn't really matter to him who the president was. The president of the United States 
was his commander-in-chief, and that's all there was to it. So whatever political party he belonged to made no difference to his job, you know, or his loyalties. Um, I have long since grown out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Not. Yes, I, I take it you. You're an ardent Republican. I am a liberal, <laughs> darling. I am liberal. Anyway. Um, and I think part of the reason I am so liberal is because of all the exposure around the world to different levels of living and different backgrounds and different, a lot of it being different access, you know, different possibilities for people. You know, visiting some of the countries as we did, you just knew that, you know, the, inop the inequalities were so vast in some places that... How could you not? <laughs> How could you not be liberal in one day? You know, I, I mean, I really think that the Foreign Service fosters this kind of compassion, this ability to put yourself in someone else's place and, and see, you know, a life. We, I mean, grant you, we are a huge country, and most Americans don't, can spend days traveling and never have to leave or speak another language or deal with another currency or another, you know, historical background. And, all right, okay, I understand that. But the fact that we don't seek it out, the fact that we are not encouraged as a country to broaden our horizons more, I find discouraging. Well, this uh, is one of the things I think almost in the Foreign Service uh, experience, and that is when we come back to the United States and home leave or something. You know, I can remember doing a cross-country trip coming from Yugoslavia, and I had a car which had a Yugoslav plate, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get a lot of that. Uh, uh, questions about Yugoslavia, nothing, nothing. I mean, people yeah. would say, well, that was, must have been hot there, or, you know, that's a long way yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Or, you know, what do they eat, maybe? Or yeah. more often, what do they drink? No, that's all right. When I ended up back in Springfield, Missouri, from London, that was the greatest cultural shock of my life. Um, I I didn't know any of the TV shows. I had not. I'd never been to a McDonald's for God's sake, you know. And I couldn't find out anything about the rest of the world. I mean, all the news programs were you know local. The papers had no international news. I mean, oh, totally! I was completely cut off from the rest of the world. It was the most shocking thing to happen to me. And even at that time, the national news was only domestic, yeah. you know, they didn't cover foreign affairs, it was, it was terrible, it was terrible. This has been an ADST oral history podcast. To listen to part three of three of Kathleen Turner's oral history interview, please download the next episode of the ADST podcast. For more information on ADST, or similar interviews, please visit ADST.org. Thank you for listening.